Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're talking about the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Ephesians. Now, this letter may have been a circular letter that was circulated throughout the early Christian church and then later is attributed to the Ephesians. We don't know. Also, we just need to be aware of this. This is the first letter in the New Testament that is considered by many scholars to be non-Pauline, meaning that perhaps he wrote many of the things in this letter, but that it was later put together by a scribe or some of his followers and circulated in the early church. One of the reasons why a lot of people think this is because the things written in Ephesians, uh, the way it's constructed, generally lend itself to letters that were not written by Paul. The sentences seem to be a little bit more complex and a little bit longer than the genuine Pauline epistles. Now, it's debated. Uh, for the purpose of this podcast, I'm going to speak of this as if Paul wrote it. I believe they're his words. They reflect his sentiment, his thoughts. Many of the things that he discusses that occur in the genuine Pauline epistles are reflected in this letter. I think the first chapter of Ephesians reflects what Joseph Smith taught about Paul, that Paul was initiated into the mysteries, that he understood the endowment. The endowment Uh, that is contained in the Holy Temple is, in my mind, clearly indicated in the first chapter. Now, just so we're aware, because this is the first what's considered non-Pauline epistle, I want to just talk about, okay, what were the genuine Pauline epistles and what is kind of up for debate? Scholars all agree that Galatians, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Philemon, 1st Thessalonians, and Philippians, those seven letters are all genuine Pauline epistles. We talked about Galatians last time. That was probably the first letter written by Paul. These letters, everyone is agreeing, these letters were written by Paul. Now, some of the non-Pauline epistles, or what scholars think are the non-Pauline epistles, are the pastorals. That's First and Second Timothy and Titus. We'll talk more about why when we get to those letters. Now, some scholars debate on Colossians and Second Thessalonians. They argue over whether or not those are genuine Pauline epistles. The epistle to the Hebrews is anonymous, but many people consider it to have been written by Paul. So that kind of brings us to Ephesians. The way I approach it is I believe that the epistle to the Ephesians reflects Paul's genuine sentiment, what he felt about the church and his thinking and those kinds of things. Perhaps uh, later followers edited the text or maybe even combined it with other parts of his writings or his thoughts and circulated it in the early church. Now, this letter to the Ephesians was written by Paul during his imprisonment. If you go to the third chapter of Ephesians, verse 1, we read, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. And we see it again in chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. And along with the letter to the Ephesians, there are other letters which were written by Paul when he was in prison, or as many people call it, under house arrest. And he had other visitors come and communicate things to him, and he was able to write letters and then give the letters to these messengers, and they were able to take these letters to the churches and circulate them. These other prison letters that share similarities with Ephesians are Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. 
Brother S. Kent Brown has written a really good commentary on the book of Ephesians. We reference it in the show notes for those of you that are interested. I highly recommend it. He writes this concerning the purpose of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He says, what arises at the beginning and end of the epistle frames Paul's emphasis. At the letter's opening, a reader encounters the dazzling view of the heavens and what has occurred and what will occur therein. It was there that God the Father set out his intentions before the foundation of the world that would open the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto himself and grant Christ's followers redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. More than this, in the end time, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, the Father will gather together in one all things in Christ, offering the faithful an inheritance in the celestial realms after being sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. In this light, Paul plainly presented the grandeur of the unfolding, celestially driven events. It was his purpose to remind his readers about unspeakable events that had swirled around since the premortal existence and were continuing to enrich them in their earthly lives. Why did he do this? Because times were about to get rough. Paul did not draw his readers' attention to conflict with government authorities as a source of future troubles. No. Instead, he anticipated that unsavory matters would arise inside the church and were already beginning. Internal troubles, of course, could weaken, even cripple congregations where church members gathered. Seeking to slow evil's penetrating power, he took up the topics that we meet in Ephesians 5 and 6. At the end of the letter, the second place of emphasis, Paul landed hard on the looming apostasy. To hold this hard-charging, sable mass at bay, Paul appealed for strong marriages and families, not even excluding slaves who served inside the home. This emphasis on families brings home an important message. How might Paul's readers meet the challenge? By becoming imitators of God. Furthermore, they were to put on the whole armor of God and to stand. Theirs would not be an easy task because it would take inspiration arising from holding to the word of God. That is, by embracing the scriptures and praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. In a word, Church members stood on the edge of a precipice that overlooked the vast darkness of spiritual wickedness in high places where their enemies would like to push them. You see, whether or not Ephesians was written in Paul's lifetime or not. Now remember, Paul is killed in the middle of the 60s AD in Rome, according to tradition, under the direction of Nero when he was the emperor in Rome. Many scholars think that Ephesians was textualized and circulated in the early church probably right around 110 AD right in the beginning of the second century. This is the beginning when the early Christian church was about to fracture into even more segments, as well as to receive massive persecution from the Roman authorities. Those that did not sacrifice to the Roman emperor and worship him as God, many of them were put to death. Now it's debated. Scholars don't all agree on how intense the Christian persecution was, but the one thing all scholars agree on is that it did exist. I kind of take the position that it was pretty bad, that there were moments uh, during the first three centuries where being a Christian could be a 
a life-threatening experience, that those that were really faithful experienced great persecution, many of them dying for their faith. We have records of this happening, but how intense it was, I think it just depends on who you read and uh, the position that they take. But either way, being a Christian in the second and third century probably would have been uh, very difficult for these individuals. But note that Paul is not calling out the government here. Paul's talking about okay, what can you do as a Christian? How can you live your life? And I think this is very applicable today because I think sometimes we can focus and look outward and think about all the problems out there in society. But the one thing that I see here in Ephesians, as well as a great message of the Book of Mormon, and I know, Bryce, you're a huge proponent of this message, that following Christ isn't about me fixing other people, but it's about me finding ways that I can change. How can I follow Christ instead of worrying about the outside world, but rather what can I do? And Mike, here's my theory why this text is a little bit different than other Paul's other writings. I acknowledge that if you read Ephesians, it does sound different. You notice it's not typical Paul. Now, here's my theory, and I'm not a scholar, so I'm not coming at this as a scholar looking at the ancient texts, but I believe that Ephesians is a temple text. It's for endowed members of the church who are focused on a different emphasis in their life. And one of the reasons I believe that comes right in the very beginning, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, he seems to draw attention to the temple when he says, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ,' who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now tell me that doesn't sound like a higher, holier place where we've gone. Higher covenants. The Lord has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now let me remind you, what I call chapel ordinances or chapel messages kind of conform to the outer courtyard of the ancient tabernacle, which was really the focus of coming out of the telestial world and into a terrestrial. And that, I would suggest, is Paul's basic message. That's Paul number one. Paul number one is get out of the world and come into the temple. Get out of the telestial and come into the terrestrial. And so we find Paul saying things like, look at verse 2, Ephesians 2, verse 2, wherein in the time past, so talking about previous, in the time past, ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And in that transition, you were walking among the lust of our flesh, verse 3, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. That's the first journey. Come out of the world, come into the temple. That's the focus of the chapel. When we move into the temple, the change we're being asked to make is to get out of the terrestrial and into the celestial. For example, temple ordinances, and I'm going to use Ephesians 2 as an example, are not focused on no longer walking in the lust of the flesh. That's verse 3. Rather, 
temple ordinances are kind of, you've made some progress coming out of the telestial and into the terrestrial. So now let's focus on the next changed. And I love verse 14. To me, it just speaks volumes of what the temple is trying to do. The temple is trying, like Jesus, to break down the middle wall of partition between us. So you're going to see a lot in Ephesians about this oneness coming together as a people. By the way, Bryce, before you move on, can I just comment on verse 14 about breaking down the middle wall of partition? I see that just like you're talking about, like the veil between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. But also, what if it's also that wall that made it so if I was a Gentile, I couldn't come in to the temple? Remember that in Jesus's day, there was a sign that said, hey, if you're a Gentile, you're not even allowed into this outer courtroom. And so notice what Paul says. And we're going to come back and talk about this, the whole bit in uh, Ephesians 2.8 about grace, right? And not of works. That's verse 9. We're going to come back to that. But right after he says we're not saved by works, he says in verse 11, Remember that you in the times past were Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by those that are of the circumcision in the flesh. In other words, I think verse 11 is talking to the Gentiles. And then he says in verse 12, that at any time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. So there are some interesting things happening in 11 and 12 where he's talking to Gentiles. But I think he's also talking to Jews because he says, we're not saved by works. I'm going to take that as works of the law of Moses, Ephesians 2 verse 9. So it seems like he's talking to both groups. And so then he says, we're going to break down this wall of partition, which you just referenced in verse 14. And then look what he says in verse 16 that he can reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And then verse 19, we're not strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. I think he's also talking about not only the temple, but human beings, right? We have two different groups of people, and there's a partition wall between them, and Paul says, we've got to knock this down. Now, if that isn't a relevant message for what's going on in the world today— I, I don't know what is. I mean, can you see that as a possible interpretation, meaning that maybe Paul's talking about at least two things here? Many, many. Now think about the walls between all of us. This is why Paul's going to sound a little bit different, because I think it's a different message, and his message is a temple message. We've got to get out of the terrestrial room and leave terrestrial things behind and come into the celestial. So watch for that theme as we go through the Ephesians. And ask yourself, what is the weaponry of this fight? What is the weaponry that I put on in the fight against not just celestial things, there's still a weaponry I use there, but what are the, what is the armor I put on in the fight against terrestrial things, pulling me and keeping me in the terrestrial room. And those of you who've been to the temple, I think this book is going to resonate with you a great deal. So now let's jump in specifically into chapter 1. And those of you who've, again, been to holy places, think about the beginning of that presentation. And we're going to go back to premortal life, and we're going to talk about being chosen. Look at verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4 being chosen before the foundation of the world. 
And in that setting, Paul's going to use a word that we believe is a mistranslation and is not in harmony with common gospel principles, and that is predestined. He's going to say it in verse 5 and also in verse 11 that we are predestined. Now, the reason that is not in harmony is predestiny seems to suggest there's no agency, that you don't get to choose, that this is what was destined to happen no matter what you chose. And the doctrine of the church today isn't predestined, but foreordained. I like to connect it to verse 4, that before the foundation of the world, you were foreordained to be holy and without blame before him in love. Whatever the specifics. We, sometimes we talk about, I was foreordained to hold this particular calling, or I was foreordained to do this. But the biggest picture of all is that we were all foreordained to be the Lord's servants here on earth, and that we were foreordained to be holy and to do our very best to live above the world in love. That, I think, is the foreordination. And so he also goes into the adoption of children by Christ. We've talked a lot about this, that Jesus becomes our parent when we make covenants. That's that Mosiah chapter 5, verse 7 verse, that because of the covenant, you shall be called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. So we were foreordained to be part of that group, to find that group. Something is calling out to our souls to be part of that adopted group by Christ. So notice that the foreordination is a call to the higher, to the holier, to find his purposes on earth and commit to follow them. To me, all of chapter one is the message of the endowment, that the Lord created this earth and the end game is to bring us home. So in Ephesians 1, we do begin with this idea of taking our minds back to before the creation. We read in verse 3, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So right at the beginning, Paul is acknowledging in verse 3 of chapter 1, God the Father and His Son Jesus. And then he says, Who have blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame. So Paul really is hearkening back to the pre-earth life. And that word for predestinated is, at least in this verse, verse 5, is a participle. It's, and it's also aorist. It's having foreknown or having determined the limits or having set the limits or having foreordained us unto the and I really like the way it's translated here, unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. It is our Father's will that we come back to him. And he, in the beginning, having determined or having foreordained or set in mind or set limits, he created a a circumstance, this earth, whereby we could have the mortal experience to come back to him as his sons. And, and when we say sons, we clearly mean sons and daughters. At least in the Hebrew mindset, B'nai Israel was uh, the sons of Israel, 
but really it's the children of Israel, the sons and daughters. I really like how King Benjamin makes that distinction. We become the sons and daughters of Christ. And so then back to the text, if you go to Ephesians 1, we read, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the richness of his grace, wherein he has abounded towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. And that idea of mystery, Paul is going to discuss quite a bit in Ephesians. To mysterion to thelmatas atu. I love that. The mystery of his will in Ephesians 1.9. I really appreciate what LeGrand Baker taught regarding this idea. He wrote, Paul taught the saints that each had made covenants in the divine council before we came to earth. But we speak of the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. That's 1 Corinthians 2.7. So this idea of mystery is, is clearly at home in Paul's writings. He reminded the Ephesians, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. He left no question about what he intended to say when he added, unto me who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. The mysteries, secrets confided only to the initiated, Paul describes as not only secrets in this world, but have always been and always will be. He taught the Romans, and this is Romans 16, verse 25. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but is now made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. So with that in mind, as Baker quotes from Paul's letter to the Corinthians and then to the Romans and then several places in Ephesians, one of the things we get from this idea of the mystery that's written about here in this first chapter is this idea that a mystery is something that is given to the initiates. And another way to read it is it's something that can be given by revelation. And so in this sense, in verse nine of chapter one, the will of the Lord is a mystery. And how do we understand it? We hearken back to the pre-earth council. We understand who the Father and the Son are. We understand our relationship with them. And what do they want to give us? And we read in verse 11 that they want to give us an inheritance. And then it does use the word predestinated in verse 11. And I like what Bryce said where he said, you know what, let's go with the word foreordained. It still gives the idea that God knew before things were set forth his will and what he wanted. I think one of the problems with predestination or that word predestinated is the idea that came from Calvin. And Calvin is really standing on the shoulders of Augustine because Augustine way back in the early church, he kind of coined this term irresistible grace, that the grace of God is irresistible and God will save those who he will save and he will damn those who he will damn and there's nothing you can do about it. And with that, the idea of predestination 
took root in early Christianity and with John Calvin and the Presbyterian movement, as Joseph Smith attended those churches with his mother, he sat there and it didn't make sense to his logical mind that God would predestinate or predetermine who would be saved and who would be damned because to Joseph, it fought against his notion of agency. Fairness and equality. And frankly, Joseph knew this growing up. If I want those 80 acres behind the farm cleared... God's will is not going to clear that farm. I've got to actually get an axe. I've got to get up with my father, and I've got to go chop those trees down. And so Joseph lived in a world where, at least in his mind, he was thinking, hey, this is the real world. What I do actually plays a part in my environment. What I do actually plays a part in my character development. And so for Joseph, that just didn't fly. Now, I'm okay with the word predestinated if we just go right to the idea of foreordination, and so I just I, I understand the difficulties in that word, but to me the way I read it is God had a will, and that will is that we come back to Him. Now notice what happens in verse thirteen. In verse thirteen, He talks about the Holy Spirit of promise that's going to come to those that believe. Now that Holy Spirit of promise is the Spirit of God that ratifies gospel ordinances, and that is telling me as a faithful saint, when I receive the Spirit as I take the sacrament, or as I participate in gospel ordinances, it's the Lord telling me, Mike, you're on the right path. You are coming home. And so then he uses this term, Erebon, and we've talked about it before. It's in verse 14. It's translated as the earnest. That's the idea of earnest money when you're to purchase something, like a home. So the Holy Spirit is the Erebon, or the earnest It's God's promise to you that you are on the right path, that you will be saved, that you will have an inheritance. He says that the Holy Spirit of promise, that's verse 13, is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. And who purchased it? Jesus. And so we will be brought back into his presence. And we even read that in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints is. That's verse 18. Now I see that through the lens of the temple, that I will be brought back into the presence of God. I see that in the context of the brother of Jared coming to the veil and seeing the Lord and then finally seeing him totally. Or as Amulek talks about it, being encircled in the arms of safety. Now the end of chapter one can be kind of confusing, but the big picture is that God will put all enemies under his feet. That's verse 22. If you want to know more about some of the complexities of verses 19 through 21, we put another translation of that in the show notes for you. I will just say this. Those words in Paul's day could have meant a couple things. He could be speaking about the power of God is above the earthly archons or the earthly powers, those that have dominion over men. But it could also be speaking about spiritual forces of darkness. Some of those words were used in Paul's day to describe, at least as they understood it, the forces of darkness in the world. And so Paul could be speaking to both things there. But just know 
that it doesn't matter whether it's worldly powers or spiritual forces of darkness, to Paul at least, Jesus is going to put all those things under his feet and he's going to bring the church back to him and present them to God. Why? Because as Paul parts the veil in the very beginning of the book, he speaks about the Father and the Son and their will that they will give us an inheritance. To me, all of chapter one is the message of the endowment that the Lord created this earth and the end game is to bring us home. So now the question is, what are the middle pieces I need to do to get to that end? What did I promise in the beginning I would do to get to that end being now in the middle? And we're going to focus on the temple's message. So we're going to assume that we're making great progress in getting out of the telestial world. And so in verse 10, he kind of introduces the theme of Ephesians by pointing out a prophecy of our day. I love that he calls our day the dispensation of the fullness of times. Now, I don't know if Paul fully understood that it would be our day. I think there was part of Paul that thought it would be his day, that the second coming was going to happen in his day. But then there seems to be another indication that Paul knew that it would be after a falling away. Now, was that falling away a temporary and still in that dispensation the second coming would occur? I don't know. But we know about our day. And so in verse 10, he says, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. And I think that is the kickoff of the theme of Ephesians, is that if I want to be embraced by God in the end, I need to be one. I need to be one with God. I need to be one with the fellow saints. I need to be one with the commandments. He's going to mention all sorts of different onenesses as we go throughout this book. But in our day, God is bringing together in one all things in Christ. And I think that's a symbol of what I individually need to do. So now we go into chapter 2. And much like the Sermon on the Mount, here's what you did to get here. Verses 2 and 3 This is what you've done to get to the point where you're at. You were walking in the world. You were giving into the lusts of the flesh. And now you've overcome that. But the only way you're going to continue this journey is if you get the Lord's help. If you partner with Christ and gain his grace and his help. To continue the race. And so he says in verse 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, Mike and I have talked about grace a lot. Allow us to just do a brief recap. Sometimes in the church, we speak about grace kind of using the words of Nephi. It is by grace that you're saved after all you can do. And the image that we often portray is, you're alone. You've got to go as far as you possibly can all by yourself. And there are high expectations about how far you have to go. 
And then and only then does Christ take over and carry you the rest of the way. That seems to be how we as Latter-day Saints like to pitch that idea. And sometimes, it's, Bryce, we think, oh, if I, if I haven't done my all. I mean, how many times, Bryce, have you done something and you're like, did I really give it my all? And then we beat ourselves up, we right? We beat ourselves up because we consider this high expectation of how far I have to get on my own. But the way grace is portrayed in the Scriptures, the way the Lord teaches it, is that it is just that. It is a gift of God all along the way. It's not all me, and it's not all him. It's participatory. It's I do something, and he does something. I love the language of the Doctrine and Covenants, and Joseph Smith quite often picked up on this language and used the phrase, grace for grace. In Doctrine and Covenants section 93, which is an absolute gem of a section, John the Baptist pointed out three times, 12, 13, and 14, that Jesus did not come to earth perfect that our Lord went through the veil and forgot all of premortal life and had to go through this same dance with his Father that we're going through with him. Jesus had to progress. Look at verse 12. Grace for grace. And then look at verse 13. It's a little bit different. He progressed from grace to grace. So if you combine those, I think the the picture that paints itself in my mind is grace for grace, is that dance with Christ where I contribute and he contributes. One of the things I do is I live up to the light that he gives me. He gives me light. I was born into this world with light, and every time I obey Light is my reward. Light is his grace to me, one of them. And I receive light to see more clearly. That's God's grace. My grace is that I obey that light. It's kind of like, here's my analogy again, walking into a dark room. My life is like walking into a dark room with a very small amount of light. Now, with that light... I can see that the furniture is in disarray. I have enough light to see that the furniture needs to be fixed. That was my initial gift of light. Now, my gift to Christ is that I fix what I can see. I straighten up the furniture. I can see in this room the furniture's a mess, and so I tidy up the room, and I straighten up the furniture. That's my offering. That's my gift. That's my giving to Christ as much as I can. All that I can do with the light that I currently have is to tidy up the room and fix the furniture. So then Jesus comes in as part of the dance. I took a small step forward. Now he's going to give me a small step to go forward. And he adds light to me. He gives me an increase of light. That's his contribution. He just endows me with more light to see. So picture the light in the room increasing. And now when the light increases, I notice that the pictures on the wall are crooked. So why didn't I fix the pictures when I tidied up the furniture? And the answer is, I couldn't see them. 
I couldn't see that they were crooked. I didn't have enough light. So if the high expectation back then was to fix the pictures, it was unrealistic because I couldn't see that they were crooked. The only way I saw that they were crooked is by fixing what I could see and tidying up the furniture, and then God, as a step forward, not leaps and bounds, but as a step forward, showed me that the pictures were crooked. Now my gift to God is to straighten the pictures. Do you see how that grace for grace works? Not putting everything on him and not assuming the whole responsibility is on us. We are saved when we partner with Christ and give him all that we can by fixing what we see and receiving from him help to do the rest. You know, Bryce, what you're just talking about here reminds me of a couple things, and one of them is the light in the temple. I bring my gifts, my charis, my grace, I bring my gifts, and the Lord gives me grace. When the light gets brighter, there's a point where the Lord says, okay, I've got you this far. Are you willing now to give everything? And when you say, yes, I'm willing to give everything, the Lord says, now you're prepared to come into my presence. Look at section 93, verse 20. If you keep my commandments, you shall receive of his fullness and be glorified in me as I am in the Father. So Jesus did it. He followed it. He gave his charis, his grace to God. God gave him grace. Jesus became like the Father, the gift giver. Therefore, I say unto you, you shall receive grace for grace. So we are to follow or to be imitators of Jesus. Paul's even going to use that phrase where he says, I want you to imitate Jesus. Now it's lost in the King James, but it's in the Greek. We'll get to it. That idea is literally in the temple, that idea of the light and coming into God's presence. The second thing that you're talking about, and this is just me, I'm just, I'm going to geek out briefly on this, but in many Christian traditions, they call the sacrament the Eucharist. And that's a couple words. You have that little eustem in the beginning, that bit means good or, or goodness. And then you have charis, eucharis or Eucharist. Um, taking the sacrament is God's good gift. But it doesn't just happen. I have to, at least in this Christian tradition, I have to show up to Mass. And then I take it, and as I receive the gift from God, the Spirit comes to me, and I promise to God that I will remember Him. And in the church today, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we call it the sacrament. But in my mind, I also think of it as God's good grace. I show up, I receive it, and he promises me his spirit. So I really like that. As you refer to it, Bryce, it's like an exchange. It's really beautiful. And I think if we, if we read it that way, I think we get out of this, uh, we get out of the fight of like, okay, what am I saying? Is it by? grace? Is right. it works? You know what? It's all and it's neither. However you're using the term, you're going too far. Because the idea is it's a partnership with Christ where I do something and he does something. Yeah, like And that. only then, only then, back in chapter 1, does the Holy Spirit of promise seal it, is if we've partnered with Christ. 
So that's the invitation is you've got to partner with Christ to take that next step. Now, getting very specific about one of those next steps is what we talked about in our introduction. In verse 14 of chapter 2, which is one of my absolute favorite Pauline additions in my life, I love this idea from Paul, that Jesus is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh all enmity. Now, for me to join Christ, for me to partner with Christ, I have to tear down that middle wall of partition between me and many others and anyone else so that I can become, look at verse 16, he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. If I'm really going to partner with Christ, what I need to work on is crucifying the enmity I have with other people and becoming one with them. So that, verse 19, I am not a stranger, and they're not a stranger, and I'm not a foreigner, and they're not a foreigner, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God. I want to talk briefly about that word, stranger. I am not a stranger. I want to take you back to the Doctrine and Covenants. There is a beautiful verse in section 88 that says, verse 34, Verily I say unto you, that which is governed by law is also preserved by law and perfected and sanctified by the same. I need to read that again because I want you to process this. That which is governed by law. Now, that's what I do. I yield to the law. I submit to the law. That's my portion. That's my grace. That which is governed by law. In other words, if you will yield to the celestial law, if you will give yourself over, and submit to the law of the celestial world so that you are governed by that law, that law will preserve you. That's God's grace to me, is that if I submit to the law, the law protects me. It perfects and sanctifies me. So here's what I, I love that the scriptures portray that the ancient fathers, the, the patriarchs of the past felt like they were pilgrims and strangers on this telestial world. Here they found themselves in the telestial world and they didn't feel at home. Well, no wonder because their home was a celestial world. If you will obey the celestial law, you will find yourself a stranger in the celestial world. You will say, I'm not from here. I'm not comfortable here. How many times have you felt uncomfortable in the transgressions of this planet and this world? Well, that's because you are yielding to a higher law. And you are coming, becoming much more comfortable with that law. Well, now go back to section 88 and watch what happens when you yield to the law of a higher kingdom. 
Starting in verse 40, he says, intelligence cleaveth unto intelligence. Wisdom receiveth wisdom. Truth embraceth truth. Virtue loveth virtue. Light cleaveth unto light. Mercy hath compassion on mercy. In other words, when you yield to a celestial law, you resonate at a higher frequency. Now, what happens when you come in contact with someone who's resonating at that same higher frequency? There's a oneness. There's a I'm home. I am with someone that makes me feel at home. That's because we're both yielding to a higher law. And I truly believe what Paul is asking us to do here is to yield to the law of the celestial kingdom. Tear down the wall of partition, which doesn't belong in any celestial heart. So that when everyone, when all of us who are trying to yield to a celestial law get together, guess what? Oh, I'm home. I have found peace in this world. I am not a stranger anymore. I am not a a foreigner. I am a fellow citizen with the saints. These are the people that make me feel at home. I think that's the plea in chapter two. So by being in one body, at least some scholars see this as a message dealing with the fractures in Christianity. Now, the fractures in Christianity, in my mind, start at the very beginning. This idea of oneness really is going against some of the early views of many of the Christians. You see, there were many Christianities that existed when Ephesians was written. Whether you look at it as being written in Paul's lifetime sometime before 70 AD, or whether it really was written in the second century, there were many different Christian groups. We have the fractures between the Ebionites and the apostle followers in the very first century where we have individuals who say you have to be Jewish to follow Jesus. If you remember, these are individuals that follow Jesus but also believed you had to live completely the 613 laws of Torah. Those individuals continue to work against some of Paul's ideas. We read about that when we talked about Galatians. Remember where teachers come from Jerusalem and undo everything Paul did. And Paul writes to the Galatians and says, guys, you don't have to live all the laws of Torah to follow Jesus. There were the apostle followers, those that followed the apostles and were close to them and did their best to follow them and their teachings. There were the Gnostics that kind of arose in the first century, and some of the Gnostics had the view that the apostles didn't see the resurrected Christ. And some of the Gnostics had this view that it was knowledge that could bring us into sacred spaces. And there were many Gnosticisms as well. We could do a whole podcast just on the early Gnostic movements. I think it's it's a disservice to put them all under one umbrella. But know that in the second century, a new group of Christians emerged. There were many Christianities, and one of them was the Marcionites. The Marcionites were those that followed an individual named Marcion, and he wanted to reject many of the writings of the Old Testament. He looked at the Old Testament as denigrating God. He, he thought that that didn't represent who Jesus was to him. And so he had a view 
that was different than many of the Christians. In fact, many say that because of Marcion and his views where he wanted to take the Old Testament and and get rid of it, that because of Marcion and his viewpoint, that's why we even have the New Testament. That the idea of a canon, at least to the Christians, came out of the idea of, okay, what are we going to do about Marcion? He's throwing away the Old Testament, and he even wanted to eliminate many of the New Testament writings that became part of canon. And so as a response to Marcion, many bishops got together and worked to cultivate a New Testament canon. There were other Christian groups as well, as uh, another one would be the Montanists. These are individuals that followed a man named Montanus, and he believed that revelation had ceased. And we kind of see this in Paul's writings where he's trying to keep the church together in his letters, and he realizes there's many different voices out there. We've talked about that back when we did 2 Corinthians. Remember the voices that were pushing against Paul. And so because of this, Paul is trying to center the church, trying to push them in a direction where they understand where there is authority. We saw that in 2 Corinthians, and we see it here in Ephesians 2, when we get into verse 20. So in order to achieve this oneness, we've got to come back and have a center. In verse 20 of chapter 2, it says, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We've got to be built upon prophets, seers, and revelators. Now, jumping to chapter 4, we'll come back to chapter 3, but jumping to chapter 4, that becomes a major theme of chapter 4 and a center point of this book that God has given us as a gift. This is part of his grace. He's going to give me help in the form of church leaders. Notice in chapter 4, verse 11, he gave some apostles, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Notice that verb. Now, that's going to be emphasized in the Doctrine and Covenants. Allow me to jump to section 124 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which is the first section received in Nauvoo and kind of sets up this whole last period of Joseph's life in Nauvoo. At the end of that section, notice what he does. He's going to start from the top of the hierarchy to the very bottom. Verse 123, very similar to Ephesians 4. Now I give unto you the officers belonging to my priesthood. Notice that verb. One of God's graces is the gift of church leaders, of prophets, seers, and revelators. And then my grace to God is to follow them. If I commit to follow Christ, he gives me a prophet. If I commit to follow that prophet, Christ gives me added light. They are gifts. Notice in verse 124, I give unto you a patriarch. I give unto you a prophet. I give unto you the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And then he continues with the other officers. Verse 131, I give unto you a high council. I give unto you a president over a quorum of high priests. Now we today call that the stake president. I give unto you a president over a quorum of elders. 
I give unto you a quorum of the 70. I give unto you a bishopric. And then 143, listen to Jesus talk about his gifts. The above offices have I given unto you, and the keys thereof for helps and for governments and for the work of the ministry and the perfecting of my saints. So back to Ephesians 4, he says, he gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Why? Why did he give me a prophet? Verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints. And then verse 13 kind of ties it into our theme Till we all come to the unity of the faith. There we are, back to oneness. I cannot get out of the terrestrial world and get into the celestial until I achieve that unity of faith, oneness. And it requires that I yield to and listen and obey the direction that come from the gifts that God has put in place my helps, because without them, verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of man and cunning craftiness wherein they lie in wait to deceive. Without a central source of truth and direction, we are going to go every direction, and we will not have a unity of the faith. Notice back in verse 4 of chapter 4, there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. I like that. Ephesians 5.1, be therefore followers of God as dear children. I think probably a better translation is Paul says to them, Become the imitators of God as beloved children. I think that's probably a better translation. Mimitai, to imitate. Paul is encouraging us to imitate Jesus. And how do we do this? Well, he tells us. He tells us in the fourth chapter, verse 24, to put on the new man. He also tells us right before that in verse 22 of chapter 4, to put off the conversation or the former conversations of the old man. And so he's encouraging the saints to leave behind the things that we did before. And as we follow Jesus, we become imitators of him and we put on the new man. Now that word in duo to put on over and over again, Paul's telling the saints to put on sacred vestments or to put on the attributes of Jesus. It's multivalent, this idea of putting on. And so how do we do this? Well, in chapter four, verse 25, he says, put away lying, speak every man truth. He says in verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of the edifying that it may minister grace unto the hearers. So that word that he uses in verse 29 that's translated as edifying is this idea of building others up. And why do we do this? Because we don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit, verse 30, and we want to avoid all bitterness, wrath, and anger. And we want to be kind to one another, 
tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So that's back to the idea that Bryce talked about, about grace for grace. As I show kindness, as I show grace to others and forgive them, God forgives me, and I become like the master. I become the way he is. I become an imitator of God as beloved children. That's back to Ephesians 5 verse 1. And as I do that, chapter 5 verse 2 says that I walk in love as Christ has loved us. I become as he is. And then he encourages the saints in verses 3 through 7 to avoid the activities that were going on in the Gentile world. Now in chapter 5, Paul's also going to talk about household codes. It starts really in Ephesians 5.21. It goes to the end of chapter 5 and continues in the 6th chapter all the way to verse 9. So you really have about 21 verses talking about the household codes in the Roman world. And the way it worked in Rome is there was a hierarchy. And on the top would be the individual who was over the home. And then it would proceed down from the husband to the wife and then to the children. And remember, many people in the Roman world, some say as many as a third, lived in a condition known as slavery. And and a lot of times that word doulos for slave, that word for slave, is translated by the King James translators as servant. And so sometimes we'll read about servants, and then Paul will say, hey, servants, you need to do these things. And we just need to be aware of this, that slavery was a thing in the Roman world, and Paul's not trying to undo it. He's acknowledging it. He's not trying to undo the social order. His focus is on Christ. I think one of the reasons why he had this focus is because, at least in some of the things that I read of Paul, he seems to indicate that perhaps the Son will come soon. And if he does, we don't need to be concerned about the powers of this world. This world is just something that exists, but the but the real reality is Christ Jesus. To Paul, that is the real reality, and he wants to point everyone to Christ. Now, in the context of these household codes, I just want to say this. I think the big picture is Paul's trying to emphasize if we want to get through this tough time, that's coming. We've got to be unified, as has been discussed, and we need strong families. We need families to love each other. We need to treat each other with kindness. And as we do that, as we have strong families, and as we're rooted in Christ and faithful to him, we are going to make it through the difficult times. Paul will conclude this epistle discussing about putting on the armor of God. And that idea of armor really lends itself towards this idea of great conflict. And the Christian church will face it. They will face great conflict in the second and third century. So with that in mind, let's go to the household codes. We're going to read some of this. This is in Ephesians 5. We're going to start in verse 20. Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And then he writes, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And then he writes, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot 
or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. So then in verse 29 to 33, Paul is going to speak of this in what he terms a great mystery. He says that in verse 32. Speaking of the relationship between a husband and his wife, he says that they too shall be one flesh. That's verse 31. And then he says, this is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, as the wife, see that she reverence her husband. Now, I understand the difficulties in some of these verses, especially verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands. In the Roman world that Paul lived in, in the culture that he lived in, that was the way that they viewed hierarchy. That was the way that they understood power. And that was Paul's culture. But I think the greater truth that we need to pull out of this, first of all, we need to realize Paul was a man who lived in time. He was a human being and he swam in culture. We're all swimming in culture and we don't know what we don't know. And so Paul is a man of his time. But I think the main point is this idea that we need to love each other and glue ourselves to one another, this idea of one flesh. And to Paul, it is a mystery. Perhaps one of the mysteries is this. I think there is a huge sermon that is contained in verses 28 through 33 that Paul is leaving unwritten. And he's using temple language and he's speaking in such a way that those that understand the code know what he's talking about. He's speaking in code to those that have eyes to see. Paul is telling us to love our spouses and that if we do this, we are being like Christ who loved the church. For hundreds of years, they discussed this idea that the unification between a husband and his wife represented many things. One of the things it represented was this idea that God loved the church. Another thing it represented was the idea that revelation and coming into God's presence was likened unto the sacred relationship between a husband and his wife. That idea and the commentary contained therein could fill volumes. There is so much written on this. We will include, for those of you interested, some links in the show notes if you want to pull on that thread. Yeah. And then in chapter 6, he focuses on children. He speaks to children. And then he even speaks to servants, which are in the Roman culture slaves. And he gives them some instruction. But let's focus on the armor of righteousness. What is the armor that I'm going to put on in this challenge of getting out of the terrestrial and into the celestial? When you come in out of the celestial and into the terrestrial, you stop doing the things you shouldn't do. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, what got you to this point was you didn't commit adultery. You didn't kill. You obeyed the basics laws of the, of Moses, which pulled you out of the world and into the terrestrial. You didn't do the things that you shouldn't do. But then Jesus trying to push them out of the terrestrial and into the celestial talks about what we feel, what we think about. So he'll say, what got you to this point is not killing. The next step is to not get angry to control the emotions inside you. 
Or what got you to this point, meaning terrestrial, was you didn't commit adultery. Now you need to stop looking upon people and lusting after them. You need to control your heart, your head, your eyes. So in the temple, we're going to focus on the inward part of us. In the chapel, we washed the whole body in that baptismal font. In the temple, we're going to wash selective parts of us that have more to do with the inner man than the outer man. We're going to wash our eyes so that we don't look at things we shouldn't look at. We're going to wash our hearts so we don't feel what we shouldn't feel. We're going to wash our heads so we don't think about. Do you see that change? I'm changing the inner person. Therefore, the armor I put on is to protect those inner parts of me. So Paul says in verse 10 of chapter 6, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We're not talking physical armor here. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness in this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Take on the armor so that you are able to withstand. Now, what is the armor? Let's focus on what is it that I need to protect? Now, in verse 14, I need to protect my loins. Now, yes, I think that has reference to the law of chastity. But it also has reference to what do I pass on? What do I contribute to the next generation? It's what I am. It's what I teach. It's what I pass on. So I need to protect my loins. And also in verse 14, I need to protect my heart. My breastplate is over my heart. Verse 15, my feet. My feet are the symbol of my desires to walk in a particular direction. It's not the feet that are the problem. It's the, it's the motivator to move my feet, but my feet represent the direction I'm going. Verse 16, my shield is what's going to protect all of me. My helmet is going to protect my head, my thoughts my sword. So I am protecting head, mind, might, desire, will, heart. Do you see the change from terrestrial to celestial? Now, what are the tools that will help me protect my heart and my head? Number one, truth is an armor of God. I must know the truth. Now, the Doctrine and Covenants definition combined with the Book of Mormon's definition is a beautiful combination. The Doctrine and Covenants will say, truth is knowledge of things that are and were and are to come. And then the Book of Mormon is going to add the phrase, really. Truth is how things really are, not how we think they are. Truth is how things really were and really will be. And the more I believe what's true, things as they really are, 
that will protect my head, my heart, my feet. I must believe truth. Number two, righteousness. Doing what is right and wanting to do what's right and thinking about doing what is right will protect me. Verse 15, the preparation of the gospel of peace. We find in the church daily performances, weekly performances, yearly and monthly performances. The gospel of peace is a preparation that will guide my feet in walking in the right place. The shield is faith. I often show my students this beautiful picture of a knight fully clad in armor, kind of crouching behind his shield as it's being attacked by a flame. He's holding up his shield. Faith is that shield. What is it that Joseph Smith held up when the attacks came? I knew it, and I knew that God knew it. I had actually seen a light. He held up his faith as a shield. And another one, the hope of salvation. You got to go to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 to get that. Otherwise, Paul just says helmet. But in Thessalonians, he says the hope of salvation. What protects my thoughts is the hope of salvation. And then the spirit. And then I love prayer in verse 18. I'll let you take a really close look at Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, and identify what is the armor of your life, what is in place and what is not in place to protect the vital parts inside of me. But I do want to just talk about verse 16. This armor is going to allow me to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. That phrase puzzled me for a long time. What in the world is the threat of a fiery dart when I'm wearing a breastplate of metal and I have a shield and a sword and a helmet on top of me? I'm wearing metal boots to protect my feet. Why in the world am I worried about a fiery dart? Then one day it dawned on me, the goal of the fiery dart isn't to penetrate the shield. It's not to penetrate my breastplate. The reason the devil throws fiery darts is to get our underclothing on fire. If he can get my underclothing on fire, tell me what a knight would do if the clothing underneath his armor was on fire. He would take his armor off. The devil didn't need to get me to take my armor off. I will take my armor off if the fiery darts catch my clothing on fire. One of your enemy's greatest attacks today is to throw a fiery dart of doubt, causing you to take your own armor off. He's very good at that. He throws fiery darts of doubt. They start to singe the underclothing. If we trusted in our armor, we would be fine. But in a panic, we take our armor off. And now the fiery darts can penetrate my heart. 
and my head. So would you ponder the armor that you're wearing this week? What is it that you are wearing that protects you from the fiery darts and the attacks of the enemy? Are we holding up truth and righteousness and the preparation of the gospel of peace and faith and the hope of salvation and the spirit and prayer? Those are the armors that will get us out of the terrestrial and into the celestial and into the Father's presence. Beautiful. And so with that, we thank you for your time. We will see you next week when we talk about two of Paul's prison letters, Philippians and Colossians. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.